Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 463, Expressive Language Milestones by 48 Months, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest provider of ASHA-approved CEUs for early intervention. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time to join me, I want to welcome you and let me explain what we're doing and what you're listening to and watching. This podcast is a CEU course for therapists, which means that it will be an hour or a little bit longer than an hour. And so that's what you're listening to today. I am so happy that we can share these professional courses with parents here on YouTube who want access to quality information with discussion that goes well beyond what we're typically able to uh, to uh, present to parents, and so we're so grateful for the opportunity to do that. If this is not your first course with me, welcome back. I am so excited to talk about all things related to early language development, so let's get going. Today, we are finishing up our Language Milestones podcast series. This is show 14 of a 14-part series where we have looked at all the language milestones from way back, right at about or right under 12 months, all the way up to what we're talking about today which is 48 months and we've done this with one show for the expressive skills and one show for the receptive skills for each of these age ranges so if you're just now joining me at the end of this series please go back and listen or watch those other shows because they'll provide the foundational pieces for what we're talking about today all right so today we're going to be looking at expressive language so what kids can express or typically say we'll be talking about verbal or spoken language today and again by 48 months uh, for therapists, I'm including the link below to purchase CE credit uh, for this course in our $5 CEUs. This will include CE credit plus the handout or show notes for today's show. Now, for parents, you can also purchase the handout for today's show, and the link for that is below. Now, the handout is a great tool for therapists to use for parent education or caregiver education if you're working with teachers or other caregivers, and it's a fantastic reference for where a child is, not only with the milestones, but uh, along with the strategies for how to facilitate each of these milestones in a specific child. Now, so many parents and grandparents ask how we can support, how they can support our work here at Teach Me To Talk and purchasing the handout for today's show is a wonderful way to do that. And again, you can do that for $5 or any other amount that you would like to give. And so the link uh, below is, uh, the link for that is here below. All right, so for parents who are tuning in to see how your child is doing, let's go ahead and review this milestones list. Now, one more time, it's expressive language by 48 months. So let's look at these skills and you can follow along on your handout. So the first one is uses more advanced verb endings and verb forms. And so here we're really talking about children learning how to accurately change the tense of the verb. And we'll get into all that as we uh, discuss that specific milestone, but that's a really important marker here. And again, children start to sound more and more adult-like when they begin to vary their verb forms. The next milestone is completes analogies. And so these are comparisons like you stir your food with a spoon, you cut your food with a knife, right? And so we want a child to be able to fill that in. So a child will have enough command of the language to be able to hear the words that you're using and think, what is that relationship? 
what is that what is that commonality that those two things that that she's talking about right now in her example what would they share and they're able to figure that out so kids have to have again a pretty broad vocabulary base not only to be able to understand what those analogies are but to be able to retrieve the correct word and then tell you that so that's the second milestone that we're looking at the third one is describes items and differentiates by color size shape and object so this is where a kid is able to compare two different objects and tell you what's alike and what's different in those uh, between those two things that they're comparing so again requires a pretty big vocabulary and really specific modifiers or descriptive words and we typically think about those words as adjectives so again color words size words and shape words the next milestone uh, is similar to that because we're looking again at, at, at uh, categorizing and so this is sort of a different take on that same skill it describes what's going on in sequence picture cards so the ability to look at a task or look at an event and then decide what comes first what comes next and what comes last and again kids have to be able to compare like we were just talking about in that previous milestone here they really have to have enough language to be able to uh, again compare pair things and then figure out you know and really this is where we start to really really see evidence of their cognition and, and explaining how they have come at a, come to a conclusion or arrived at you know this is how this little event happened and so they're able to again sequence those picture cards and we'll talk more about that as we review the specific milestones the next one is answers a variety of logical questions including what happened when why and how questions now if you've been with me through the series we have talked about questions in nearly every uh receptive or expressive show throughout this mile, uh, milestone series here and now we're up to the point where kids really need to be able to they need sentence length answers to be able to answer a question like what happened or why did you do that or how does this work and so uh, that that's where we are with uh, vocabulary development and the link that we're going to talk about both of those uh, those uh, parameters as we go through the show the next milestone is makes inferences and this is when a child can answer questions about a hypothetical event so they they can take their previous experiences that they've had in the past and then they're able to make predictions about what will come next so something like what would you do if you were sick or what would you do if your puppy ran away those kinds of questions and so again they're able to really rely on what they've experienced in the past and then they're able to give you an answer that's logical and that's reasonable and again kids need that big vocabulary base to be able to pull uh, all those kinds of words that they need the last milestone here is uses conjunctions to join ideas in more complex sentences so we're talking about words like and but so and if and this will naturally uh, make those utterances longer so it's another big big milestone and a big marker that we want to see happening by the time a child turns four or 48 months so let's review and kind of talk about this overall developmental period like we've done in all of our a previous podcast in this series so we are talking about children who are in that three and a half to four year old developmental range now this might mean a child who's older who's seven 
or eight, but who's still working down here at this three and a half to four year old level. It might mean a, a child who's a timely talker. I just uh, recently have heard that uh, terminology versus late talker. And I, th I think it's a really uh, nice way to kind of put it to parents instead of saying typical or normal or average. So a timely talker, so a kid who's talked on time. So it might be that, or it might be the kid, uh, kind of kid you know that, that you may be working with in your preschool program who isn't significantly uh, behind when compared to same age peers, but certainly what my point here is that we can have kids who are really, uh, you know, 36 to uh, 42 months working on these same little skills that are in the 42 to 48 month range that we're reviewing or, or children who are much older. It's, we're looking at that developmental language uh, range. And so we know, what do we know about kids in this developmental period? We know that their vocabularies here are at about a thousand words, and that's what we said that kids with typical developing language or timely talkers, that thousand word benchmark typically reached that by 36 months. And then by 48 months, the most consistent source that I could find for expressive vocabulary size was 1,500 to 1,600 words. Now, some sources were well above that. I'm a big fan of Dr. Stanley Greenspan's work at zero to three, the whole uh, original uh, floor time method for treating autism, he says that by four children who are typically developing have between 2,000 and 4,000 words. So again, that's a big range there between 1,500 and 4,000 words. All sources agree, no matter what uh, they're using for that vocabulary size, that children are speaking in complete sentences of four to five words most of the time. Now, kids can certainly do much longer sentences. We just talked about that back with that last milestone that we re reviewed when they're able to join sentences together. And so uh, that's where we are. So we know that we hear complete sentences of four to five words and that expressive vocabulary is something that we can't even really realistically count by the time a child is turning four. All right, so as early intervention and preschool speech-language pathologist or developmental interventionist or whatever you call yourself in your state, those vocabulary numbers kind of scare us, don't they? Because even the children who are doing very well on our caseloads may be uh, really under that number. And it really makes us think about just how much ground our little friends have to cover to even sort of bump up into that next range of even low normal. And that's really, a, that's a very realistic goal, right? So this is my vocabulary always, 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 always has to be a major focus for every single kid on our caseload. And it's a focus for typical kids too. So it's not just that we have to emphasize this with our little ones who aren't learning language all children in this developmental range back from when we started to under 12 months and way up here at four years old all kids are working on vocabulary development every single day so as a speech pathologist or as a parent of a child who's struggling with language development we've got to always keep that single goal as our first and foremost focus here to make sure that we are keeping pace with de vocabulary development. All right, we have so many milestones to discuss today. So instead of keeping on with this overview, let's just get right to it. The first milestone is uses more advanced verb forms and endings. Now verbs or action words really take off in a child's vocabulary by the time that a child is in this developmental range at nearly 48 months. So children begin to acquire more mature verb forms and are now able to change the tense of the verb in sentences, which will reflect a different meaning. And remember, if you're a parent and you're 
kind of uh, struggling to remember or uh, what I'm talking about here with verb tenses. That's the ability to make a verb a past tense or a future tense. And so we do that with, again, the verb ending. Uh, think about something like a child can jump or he jumped in the past or he, he is jumping or he will be jumping. And so, again, all of those verb forms that you can uh, remember from high school English to think about that. So the new verb forms that are primarily emerging in this age range are helping verbs like is and are. And so we call those auxiliary verbs. And so it would be like the puppy is scratching his ear. The boys are walking to the store. So is and are come in there. And so they also uh, can emerge as early verb contractions. Like instead of saying daddy is home, a child might say daddy's home. That's how we shorten that. We can also add the new endings like we talked about ed to make a verb a past tense or an s to make it a present tense and again grammatically correct think about that subject verb agreement you know our ears really kind of perk up when we hear incorrect grammar like that and when an adult uses that and certainly we notice that with children too but we're a little bit more uh, forgiving with children because they are learning correct grammar and so again this would be having your subject match your verb like with the boy walks versus you know the boy walk and so this is where children really bump up their maturity and start to again match the language that they're hearing adults use around them. So remember we said before this period, ing verbs emerge. And so sources have uh, that is by 36 months or uh, for speech language pathologists, brown stages. Do you remember these? The brown stages of morphemes. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Puts it before three at around 30 months. So verbs are an important marker for us. So as SLPs, we start to, by this time that a child turns four, really look at morphology and syntax. And so if these terms are new for you, if you are not a speech language pathologist, let's just do a quick review so that we can all catch up. So what is morphology? Morphology is the branch of grammar devoted to the study of the structure of words or forms of words. And so it's primarily through the use of how we count or how a child how we count the morphemes or as a child constructs the morphemes or how he puts words together and again remember how I talked about verb endings that's a really important marker here uh, as we talk about how we can take a word or how a child can take a word and change it so what's a morpheme we're talking about morphology a morpheme is a single unit of meaning so a classic example here would be uh, the word car so the car there is just one morpheme but when a child adds like a plural Plural S, so a, an ending here. It's not a verb ending because this is a noun, but say he puts a plural on there that to, to make it more than one car. That's going to actually be two morphemes because we have that one car, that single unit of meaning, and then we added an S to make it mean something different. So that would be two morphemes. And you can tell one is always going to be less than two, so two is always more advanced, right? And so a child is really kind of bumped up that ladder as far as looking at his morphemes. Now for, and remember morphology that we're talking about right now, is different from syntax. So what is syntax? Syntax is, is comparable to grammar. So we think about it like that. It's defined as the rules governing the combination of words to form sentences. So the difference here is that morphology 
etymology is about words and syntax is about sentences. So this brings us to brown stages of morphology and syntax. So uh, as uh, early intervention speech language pathologists, we may not use this classification system or this way to kind of uh, analyze a child's language very much, but our colleagues who focus on preschool and kindergarten probably think about this at least a little bit more than we do, but it's great information to review here. So let's talk about this and walk through this specifically as we are talking about verb endings here with this milestone because it really signals an advance in language development. So Roger Brown, and remember this research is from the 70s, and you probably learned it in grad school just like I did, but Roger Brown found that there are 14 morphemes that emerge in early language, and this research was cutting edge at the time, and it still holds true today. Uh, because it's a better predictor of language development than chronological age. And so again, this is a developmental approach. So figuring out where a child is we, it, based on the things that he's saying, using a language sample, looking at what he can currently do, what he pops out on his own spontaneously, and then looking at where that is and seeing where a child how, where a child falls with that and seeing which uh, of these 14 morphemes he's missing. Are they coming in in chronological or developmental order uh, and that sort of thing. So I have listed a very simplistic summary of Brown's stages on the third page of your handout. So if you don't have that, be sure that you look at that when you purchase credit for this. And so you've got your listing right here. And so there are five stages uh, through roughly 48 months. And so uh, we're not looking at the stages per se, but we're gonna focus on these individual morphemes. And again, all of these are things by 48 months that, uh, that children, these 14 that children would have at least been possible for that to begin emerging with them. So we've reviewed the first half of the key developments in the previous shows. Uh, before this age range, but today we're going to focus on the last seven, but let's read through this whole list for a general review. So again, that you are looking at this and thinking about it and probably uh, jogging your memory if you haven't uh, thought about this in a long time. So the first morpheme that he has here is present progressive ing. And so remember, this is talking about verb form. So uh, an example here would be baby sleeping, and that's the kind of utterance that we would hear between 19 and 28 months. So look on your, or the age of mastery is what I should say there, between 19 and 28 months. So look at your handout so again, you can have a reference for what we're talking about. The next two morphemes, uh, I kind of think about these as together, but Brown really separated that. It's the, the use of in and the use of on. So two prepositions expressively, and he says these are mastered uh, between 27 to 30 months for the word in and 27 to 33 months for the word on. Now, some of you as SLPs may be scratching your heads and saying, gosh, that seems kind of late. I think kids use in and on earlier than that. But the kicker here is using it within a phrase. So block in box or dog on bed. And again, we haven't gotten to articles yet. That's a little further down, but that would be the kind of thing. And so when you start to think about, oh, a child would use those prepositions in phrases and use them not just, uh, and again, in a prepositional phrase within a phrase, if you think about it that way. So like um, the, the noun there, with block in box. And so uh, I, I do think that 27 to 33 month uh, age range there is a little bit more realistic or accurate when you think about that it's in the context of not a single word, but a phrase. The third morpheme here is regular, I'm sorry, regular plural S. 
So the example here would be uh, that we talked about before. Uh, we take a car and make it cars, or the example here on your handout would be cat to cats. And so that emerges between, or is mastered between 27 and 33 months. Irregular past tense verbs. And we haven't talked too much about this, but these come in again between uh, 25 and 46 months. And I keep saying that, but really that's the age of mastery. So I'm sorry, I keep making that error there. But we start to hear some really uh, familiar irregular past tense verbs. And I gave you the examples here on your sheet with came, fell, broke, sat, and went. All right, and then possessive S, and we talked about that in the last show, I believe, or the show before that. So this is where a child uh, shows uh, possession, that who the owner of something is. And so it would be like Laura's ring or mommy's hat and so again there they're adding the s uh, to change the meaning we we had that before a couple of uh, milestones up with looking at plural s and this is possessive s so the next morpheme in brown's 14 morphemes is uncontractable copula okay so this is where we are talking about those auxiliary verbs is and are and can a child make it a contraction or not and so in this case it would be where he can't do the contraction for instead of she's the whole answer would be with the whole form of is so in response to a question like who is hungry she is so again is can't be contracted therefore she's that that's not grammatically correct so she is so that's that's where uh, is or are um, are your main verbs there in the, that that's your verb in the sentence. All right, the next morpheme is articles. So uh, a, or would be articles, a and the and an. And so like I see the car, uh, I see a box, those kinds of things where children put those markers in before nouns. And so the next one is one that we're talking about here, regular past tense ED. And so it would be a verb where, again, we use uh, the uh, normal way of making that verb past tense. And so, in, so instead of uh, daddy pushed the mower, a child would say daddy pushed the mower. And again, uh, we can do that. That's most the most uh, typical way, the most common way of making a verb past tense. And so we want children uh, to start to master that and start to add those endings on with the maturity uh, with their language here. And the next one is regular third person S. And so this is where a child changes the verb to make it present and make it agree with the subject of the sentence. So the boy eats a cookie or the girl sleeps in her bed, just that regular third person S ending for a verb. The next one is ir irregular third person. And so this is where we change the tense of the verb again to make it match the subject. So verbs like does and has, she has the cat, uh, the boy does like it, you know, I don't know, I don't have a sentence example there, but you get my point here with the, with adding verbs where we're changing that to make that subject verb agreement. The next verb tense is the uncontractable auxiliary. So this is like the uncontractable copula in that you 
um, are not contracting it there and so that a response would be where a child uses is or are correctly in response to a question like who is wearing boots you know he is the next one is contractible copula where we are, we can contract that is or that are and uh, blend it with uh, the subject there. So my example here, instead of saying the dinosaur is big, the child would say dinos big and put that verb right there. Um, and again, you've got another, it's the helper verb. So you did that same thing with contractible auxiliary. Instead of mommy is sleeping, it's mommy's sleeping. So you can take a look at that. And again, for those of us who do, uh, early intervention, you may never get to this point with kids, right? Especially if you're not working with children who are over three anyway. But for those of us who do see preschoolers beyond this point or, or therapists who primarily treat children who are in this range, you are a lot more familiar with those kinds of things. Our point here is what? We want children making progression and then we want to see that uh, grammar start to really really uh, take shape here as a child gets older and older so to really use this information what would we do we would take a language sample and analyze for those 14 morphemes see what's missing there and figure it out and so we would decide again this this kind of information can help us decide is a child is this a language delay versus a disorder and remember what we always talk about what that uh, how we always explain delay versus disorder. Delay is always what? There's a difference in time and how a child, his speed in mastering uh, the, the particular milestones. It's just that it's slow, it's coming in, they're, all the things are there, everything's present. It's just really, really slow about emerging. Versus a child with a disorder, things uh, he can have things that are present that shouldn't be there or again he may have some splinter skills so if you're looking at this 14 morpheme list or even the milestones list that we've been reviewing throughout this whole show he might have some things up in higher ranges but be missing some skills that he should have conceivably already mastered because they're at much lower developmental levels and so when we know that we have lots of gaps like that we suspect a language disorder and so then you're saying okay great Laura what do we do then we teach what's missing right we make really specific goals based on what we know that a child uh, uses to learn. Now, I am more of a developmental person, meaning that if I see that a child starts missing these skills up here at the top of the list, I know that I'm going to focus on these and not even worry too much about these splinter skills or um, e even uh, what I'm trying to say is I take a real foundational approach. And so at the first age range that we start, even with an assessment looking at, you know, if a kid starts missing some things down at 12 months or 18 months, but he's chronologically three and doing some of these older things, I I'm uh, the therapist and I'm going to go back and fill in all those gaps so that we can pull everything forward. And so that's what I wanted uh, to say about that. All right, so how do we teach these morphemes? How do we teach these more advanced verb endings just like we do with typically developing children? Most of the time we rely on incidental teaching. And what is the strategy of incidental teaching? What in the world does that mean? It means we teach it as it comes up. So we know, oh, we should be working on more advanced verb endings. So we don't have to have a particular uh, activity scheduled for this today you know and I'm thinking more about if uh, you were 
a, a therapist going into a child's home or if you were a parent there and you were, weren't thinking about this being strictly therapy time, you would just know something like, boy, I've got to really emphasize these past tense verbs or he's really working on verb tenses here. So I've got to really make sure that I'm emphasizing new verbs here and that I'm helping him and modeling new verb tenses. And if he if he makes a mistake or if he's 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 saying the boy eated the banana, we're correcting him and we're saying the boy ate the banana. That's how we say that. And so again, just like we do with typically developing kids, we teach it as it comes up. Now for our therapy kids, we probably do need some more direct teaching, meaning that we're going to choose activities and toys to make it more purposeful and make it more functional. But I do want us to think about uh, talking about parents that if with parents about if this is their goal in speech, we need to make sure that parents are really working on that all the time too. And again, they can have that uh, just address it as it comes up versus having a really specific activity for that. Now, the other strategy that I'm going to remind you of here is something that we talked about a few shows back and it's varying our input. So saying different uh, different words around our goal or around our target words so that our target always stays the same and that's what kids hang on to because they're hearing all these other, other things uh, and they start to anticipate the pattern and that's when it really, really shows up. So let's do an example with varying our linguistic input if you are varying your context, whatever you, however you say it. Let's do an example so that we can talk about how this would look here with verb ending. So let's say our goal is teaching the uncontractable auxiliary verb is. And so again, as an EI therapist, you might not have ever said that professionally in your career uh, because we don't normally get here. But let, let's use this as an example. So to teach this, you would have lots of subjects and you would make them do things and then we're going to ask questions. And so again, here we're trying to get our target is what it's the word is so that a child will use the subject, which is, you know, usually a, a noun or a proper noun is the ex example that we're going to use and then plus the word is. And so let's take a really cute show, that show Bingo right now. I don't know if you have any little clients or your own child that likes that, but let's just take that little show and let's say that a child loves that show and the characters on there are Bluey, Bingo, Mom, and Dad. And so if you've just watched an episode with your child, or if you're playing with a toy about that or reading a book about it or whatever that is, whatever your context is right there, you would set up situations so that you ask the question and the child has to respond with the character's name plus is. So let's say, let's say that we had little characters and we had little stuffed animals that were Bluey, Bingo, Mom and Dad. So we might make the dad run and we would say, you know, who is running? Who is running? And so the child should say what? dad is and then we would do it with you know who is hiding and hide uh, one of the characters let's say it's bluey and the child would say bluey is and so then we might make the mom jump and say who is jumping mom is and so can you see what you did there you had different subjects or different nouns there with bluey and dad and mom but you kept your verb that uncontractable auxiliary verb is you kept that the same and so that's how a, ch a child would really really start to stabilize that pattern and so the answer would always be again another you know your character there uh, plus uh, that stable word for is and so you can play and talk about lots of different things but you're going to mix your uncontractable auxiliary verb questions in there so again that the child always has to answer with that same pattern. Now we model the response if they don't 
answer, you know, if they, if you say who is running and he says, dad, you know, you've got to interject your big dad is so that a child is more motivated to try to imitate you there. All right. So let's say your goal is teaching regular past tense ED verbs. So that would be like baby rolled the ball. Mommy pushed the stroller. The kitty licked her paw. And so again, you have to give lots of examples with uh, verbs who, uh, that use that ed pattern to uh, become past tense but you vary all everything else you want to use different uh, words around it so that the child really hones in on that pattern now for a past tense at some point you have to teach that something already happened too so what happened and that question is a question that kids should be answering this age range too we're going to talk about that a little later but remember verb tenses really help that accuracy uh, more traditional teaching methods we would contrast the present tense with the past tense baby rolls the ball versus baby rolled the ball or mommy is pushing the stroller versus mommy pushed the stroller but the more current research right now is not to do that to just really keep again the, your your goal the same so we would only target pat, regular past tense verbs within say a play activity or a book reading activity or whatever you've designed as your activity you're going to keep that goal the same without doing a lot of that contrasting thing uh, that we've have done forever that's kind of been the traditional way to teach it all right one other thing i do that we've talked about before is to listen to where the child is making errors and address that and i've already mentioned that with incidental teaching so that you hear him say something like uh the uh let's say let's come let's come up with something uh, let's say it uh my my uh toy is broke and you know you would correct it oh no your toy is broken and so just those kinds of examples so that where we have an example where a child incorrectly or inaccurately used the verb and we want to make it correct and so listen for a child's or uh, errors to see what you should be addressing even if it is kind of a little bit out of order if it's a missing skill it may be harder to teach but begin with what's emerging but inconsistent or inaccurate so remember what we said about splinter skills sometimes a child might have something way up here but be missing something that's more foundational and so if if they're missing a foundational skill again it's usually easier to teach if it's emerging versus if it's completely absent uh, for example if we listen to a child and he's trying past tense verbs but there's no evidence of ing or that progressive tense uh, we might teach the past tense endings since that's what he's really trying, but then we know we've got to circle back and get those ing endings too. And honestly, I'm going to tell you many times I'll start working on these things. I'll, I'll think, oh my goodness, I can't believe we're going to have to start with verb tenses here. Oh, this is, this is really, really picky compared to what we typically work on in early intervention. But then because we have facilitated it, a child's system takes over and we start to hear more and more of these verb tenses. And so when a parent gets kind of, uh, spooked by this kind of really harder goal or more complex goal than we've worked on before or if a therapist says i'm just having a harder time with this these activities aren't the same that i've done whatever the excuse is i say don't worry about it just move forward just start working on something with verb tenses because lots of times uh, a child's system will kick in and do a lot of the hard work other times it's harder and longer to work on it you're just going to have to again slug it out to make sure that it gets done but now you have a guide with some old trusted standards with uh, Brown's uh, milestones right there, or Brown's uh, morphemes. So to recap this milestone with verb endings, we want to see 
or here, ing, ed, and s verb endings. We think about teaching common irregular verbs. We think about that as early grammar, and we're going to do it as, as incidental teaching because we'll hear a child misuse the verb, and then we're going to supply the right verb and then encourage him to imitate that and then set up situations where he can use the, that word, the correct tense of that word over and over and over again. And so if he says again, you know, the girl eated the banana, we correct him and say the girl ate the banana. And then we talk about daddy ate the cookies, uh, mommy ate the blueberries, you know, whatever. And again, remember, we want to keep that one word the same. We want to look at uh, copula and auxiliary verbs with is the singular and are is plural. Is and are stand alone. Um, that's when it's a copula and it's auxiliary is when it's helping another verb. Just kind of wanted to throw that in there if you're still kind of confused about that. Uh, and also the contracted forms of copulas and auxiliaries with daddy's home and daddy is walking to the door. Honestly, we could do a whole show on teaching verbs, but we better just keep it at that and keep going on this milestone list. The next milestone is completes analogy. So between three and a half and four, a child with typically developing language makes verbal comparisons well enough to complete simple concrete analogies. And I gave you an example before, but let's do a few more. So for example, a child can finish these kinds of sentences. So you might say, ice cream is cold, but fire is, and a child would fill in what? He would say hot. A bug is little, but an elephant is, and a child would say big. So anytime a child is having difficulty with understanding or completing analogies, it's why? Why would a child have difficulty with that? Well, he does not understand the vocabulary. You can just boil it down to that. They're not correctly linking meanings to words and they can't predict what that, that uh, word to finish it would be, or they don't understand the relationship or the connection that you're trying to make. So bottom line, until a child has enough vocabulary, this goal is very, very difficult. So what do we do? And again, we're not talking about toddlers anymore. We're talking about preschoolers. So we have to keep, uh, when we start teaching analogies, we have to keep it super simple and use lots of familiar words, ideas, and concepts that they already understand. Now with analogies, a lot of times you'll see teaching programs that they try to give visual examples, but that's often super impractical. And why is that? Because we don't always, this is really, let me just say it like this. This is really an auditory skill. It's super dependent on that. We want a child to be able to hear these words and then retreat, establish what that relationship or comparison is here. And, and honestly, that's what most of these milestones are in this age range is able to a child is able to compare and really think about the differences and the similarities uh, throughout all of these milestones and so that's the skill that we're really trying to teach uh, visuals are fantastic and they help so many of our little friends with language delays really start to link meaning with words but it's going to be hard for you to come up with super specific teaching materials unless they're already pre-programmed or pre-packaged and you know that I don't love those kinds of things. So try to do it like with incidental teaching with a book or a puzzle. Uh, parents have to be able to think on their feet with these potential analogies too, which can be uh, difficult even for experienced therapists. So I'm going to teach you how I do it. We talked about it back in the receptive show for 461 too, so let's review it here. So to teach analogies, we're going to begin with items that a child has successfully used for object functions 
action activities and we're going to reword the questions which again the child may already have that underlying skill they do already understand oh what's this used for and then what's that used for and so again you're helping them make the connections and so here we're going to uh we're going to kind of start with where a child was with object functions but we're going to uh, word the question differently that would be more more like an analogy and so instead of saying show me the one for drinking or which one do you use for drinking you know if you have a cup and a knife and a fork there instead of doing it that way you're going to say something like you drink with a and again leave it for that fill in the blank so the child can complete that and so that's a good way to kind of get that going. And then you start to add the comparison piece in there. All right, so when a child is having significant difficulty achieving this milestone, what do we need to work on? Well, we're always going to work on building vocabulary. We're always going to work on understanding what object functions like we talked about. And then we always have to work on grouping objects into categories. So when we have a child who can't do analogies, those are the three components there. The vocabulary piece, understanding those object functions, and then again, that grouping or that categorization. And so we have to encourage parents to continue to work on those things at home and really build a foundation for this milestone always explaining to parents and i believe we talked about this in the last show but we always kind of want them looking ahead so we always need to say things like this is going to have her ready for kindergarten these are the kinds of questions that her kindergarten teacher is going to be uh, expect her to be able to know and so we have to really walk parents through that because again this is a trickier thing to work on at home rather than just teaching a child new words or teaching a child colors or teaching a child to uh you know use more more verbs and so again it's a hard thing for parents to do so uh, like I said back in the previous show when I am working on these kinds of things and I see that you know we're just we're kind of working on it, just increasing that general knowledge base there a fun thing that parents can do uh, would be to use these little cards now I have used these forever and these have been around a long time even since my grown children who are now in their uh, late 20s and 30s you know we use these things but these are brain quest cards I love them there are different age ranges the earliest one starts at two and I just bought this set for our uh, uh, grandbaby I was gonna say our youngest grandbaby but we have one younger than him now but uh great great way for parents to really start to address again these just kind of general questions and parents don't have to come up with the questions themselves it's all kind of laid out right there things like analogies and inferences and describing all the skills that we're talking about within the milestones are built into these kinds of uh, little games and little cards and you can certainly use other games for this there might be other similar games or certainly books parents can do this with but I like this because it's an easy tool it's relatively cheap Parents can use them anywhere, you know, standing in the grocery store line, snuggling at night at home when they're reading books together, but super, super way for parents uh, to be able to work on these kinds of goals and not think on their feet and come up with all these things. And remember, I said we can do analogies, inferences, logical reasoning, vocabulary development review. So great, great way to target those skills. Uh, in therapy, I've used them as break time with kids. And a lot of times I'll sort of start this as a therapy thing that we do and then just give them to their parents or parents buy them on their own. And then they start to use them at home. But at therapy time, they're like a break time. Kids can sit on the beanbag with me and we look at these or, you know, again, I like to do them when we're snuggling up and really uh, uh, taking just a, maybe a little time out from what we've been working on. Even at snack time, if you're sitting with a child and can, uh, maybe a child 
child doesn't really like like to do these at the beginning but you want to entice him and motivate him to stay with you so doing them while you eat would be a great thing to do it i love these because they're not a screen and uh it, it's a little bit even more interactive than reading a book if a parent isn't real skilled about asking questions or kind of working in goals and again that can be really tricky and some of us as therapists have a hard time thinking on our feet sometimes so great great tool um, and i hope that you can use that too the next milestone is describes items and differentiates by color size shape and objects so by 48 months a child with typically developing language skill can categorize and then describe objects well enough to point out the differences and the similarities so for example to assess this skill when we would maybe hold out a green ball and a blue ball to a child a child should be able to explain how the objects are different so we might say something like this one's green or that ball's blue and next you would ask how the objects are the same and so accurate answers would include comments about the category so they might say something like those are two balls or even something like the characteristics like balls both the balls bounce or all the balls bounce or I can throw this ball and I can throw this ball so those would be kind of be common answers that a 48 month old would uh, give to answer that question. So a child's not going to be able to target this skill until he's speaking in sentences and has a large varied vocabulary. So if a child's struggling to do these kinds of things, you describe by color, is he using color words? Is he using size words? Does he understand uh, how to describe an object by shape? So does he have those kinds of vocabulary words like round and square and triangle and uh, those kinds of things. So you've got to really, really build that descriptive vocabulary with uh, mostly adjectives right and then a child has to understand how to categorize which we've been talking about uh, since right back at what about 24 months right that's the first time that we started looking at simple categories so uh, sorting objects into categories and grouping and again those are foundational for a child being able to sort out or compare an object with similarities and differences and so uh, again maybe a child doesn't understand the words same and different so you might have to teach those things first and so you can see by that that this task or milestone has a huge receptive language component too so you may have to back up and kind of review or even reteach categorization or you might have to start by, again, sorting dissimilar objects into two distinct categories. Maybe you've got lots of different kinds of toys, but they're all round. And so you have to show a child, okay, here's the round ball, here's the round pillow, uh, here's, you know, find some, here's the round clock, you know, show a child those similarities there so that they can really, really see that. Uh, you might look at separating things. We talked about just really practical examples for a child who's nowhere near these kinds of things. You might have to start with things like forks versus spoons or cars versus trucks or uh, even make it those bigger uh, differences like books versus blocks and then bring it back down to where, you know, but then vehicles, you would separate, you know, cars, trucks, boats, those kinds of things. Or uh, at the beginning, you might have to sort, you know, utensils versus dishes and then you bring it back to let's sort the different utensils. And so model the language that a child should use during the activity when you're sorting and really teach them how to make those distinct piles so the forks go here and the spoons go here. Or, you know, I'm going to put all my cards over here 
uh, in this garage and all the trucks are going to park over here in the parking lot or, or an example like that. And again, you can still work it into something fun and something functional and play. It doesn't have to always be like that structured, you know, we're going to sort forks versus spoons. But again, you want to be sure that a child understands how to start to make those differentiations. And so you provide the vocabulary for those differences as you go. Like, let's go back to our uh, utensil example. So you could say something like, you know, the fork has points. The spoon does not have points. Or um, discuss the differences in function. You know, you eat ice cream with the spoon, uh, but you can't use, uh, or maybe even use something like soup that will make the example better. Or, you know, runny yogurt. You know, you can eat your uh, you can eat your soup with a spoon, but you can't eat it with a fork, you know, and again, really help a child uh, understand those differences there. So when a child understands same versus different, he can categorize and sort, and when he can categorize and sort the objects correctly, then you're really ready to teach this milestone. So again, that's kind of starting back at the basics for kids who aren't moving toward that. So begin with objects that differ only in the characteristic that you, you are comparing. So if you want to teach colors, you should use items that have that only vary by color, like Skittles or like Legos or like crayons or markers. And so then you're really, again, everything's the same except what? The color. Same thing with if we're looking at blocks or balls, look at what uh, the difference there would be. And so when we're doing size, you might get the same color of something, but the difference is only would be in the size. So you might use blocks and you have a big set of uh, red blocks or maybe even have like just uh, small red blocks and then larger red blocks. And so again, the color is the same, but the only thing that's different there is the size. And so other things that you could use to teach size, uh, you know, you can make Play-Doh balls or snakes. Little boys really like that. You could do them from the same color Play-Doh, but again, differ in size there. You could use balloons and have some of them blow them up to just be small and then blow up some balloons to be larger. You could find rocks outside when you were walking or leaves and really compare them. You know, this is a, a small leaf and this is a bigger leaf. So, uh, that those would be good examples for teaching size. What about shapes? Uh, we teach shapes all day long, but when we're trying to differentiate shapes, again, look for things that are in the same color, but the only thing that's different would be the shape there. So those are just a few ideas to get you started. You can find more of those teaching uh, examples there in my therapy manual, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and we'll talk about that at the end of the show. All right, so what do we do during these tasks? So you have to model the language that a child should use when describing and comparing the object. So this is when you're really teaching that vocabulary. And remember that you are teaching, not not testing. So if you're doing these kinds of activities and if you are over focused on keeping data, the child that you are working with is probably not learning very much. So at some point you've got to kind of put all that down and think this is not a test. This is something I really, really need to spend some time talking with him about and really, really teaching. So when a child can't complete these, this kind of task, when the objects are pretty dissimilar, use objects then that have more similarities. And so for example, you might have a small Hot Wheels car that you're comparing to a larger remote control car. And so you're going to point out what's different about those cars. Uh, you know, the 
the remote control car is bigger. They might have different colors. Certainly, uh, uh, again, you just just point out what's going to look different. But then you point out the things that are the same. You know, they both have wheels. They both have windows. They both have doors. And again, that would really help a child be able to begin to compare and contrast. So many children with language delays seem to be able to visually spot those differences and similarities. But because of their issues with expressive language, they continue to have lots of trouble finding the right words to use. So you're going to have to model, model, model to really teach those accompanying words. And lots of times don't forget about using your gestures and your visual cues that a child um, uh, might, he might even be able to do that to show you that he's understanding this concept receptively. He's just not able to tell you with uh, what's what those similarities or differences are. So we've always got to provide those words there. And so, for example, if you're talking about this kind of thing with a child and he's sitting there spinning the wheels on a truck, after you ask him to compare the truck and the car, you might say something like, oh, yes, the truck has wheels too. They're both alike. But look, the truck's wheels are bigger. So that's different. And so, again, be sure that you're using that vocabulary to really describe what's happening there. So a child who's really struggling with this task is telling you what? He has not mastered descriptive concepts that he needs. Or perhaps, again, there might be those underlying cognitive reasons for him not to be able to think and then generate a response, even if he recognizes those similarities and differences between the objects. So, um, you know, again, and again, he might even lack that foundational piece of not even really realizing what's different about those or what's what's similar. So if this is the case, you've jumped well ahead of where you should be working with that child, and what do you have to do? You have to back up and meet him at the place where that begins to break down. Most of the time, again, start with the cognitive piece. If a kid, if you real, if you think, oh no, he understands this receptively, it's just, a it's just expressive, you've got to get in there and build that vocabulary. And most of the time, that's going to be with adjectives. He doesn't have enough modifiers to accurately describe those things like shapes and color and size words. So, work on that. And so if a child, let me say one more thing about this. If a child is really struggling to complete this task, it's expressively during sessions. I don't really talk to parents about the expressive piece, what a child should say. I want the parents doing what? I want them supporting us with the receptive piece at home so that they're really helping their child understand these things. So I might say, you know, this week, I don't really want him to focus on telling you lots of size words, but I want you pointing out these, these differences. You know, this one's big and this one's small. This one's large and this one's tiny. You know, talk about even all the, all the different variations of those words that you can use. Or you might say, well, we've really got to work on those shape words. He really doesn't understand words like round and square. And, you know, he might even get things like circle and triangle, but he doesn't really conceptualize shape, what an object shape is. So we're going to have to work on that. And so again, if a parent is working on the receptive piece, you know that he's going to be uh, closer to your expressive goal. But when you sell parents on the receptive piece and working on that at home, that is really going to pay off even more. The next milestone is describes what's going on in sequence picture cards. So a child with typically developing language can retell a simple story by looking at the pictures and describing that by the time they turn about three and a half. So this is a really fun skill to practice uh, with parents and in therapy sessions. So you do this by using familiar books and you narrate the events in the same sequence, but you don't really read the words in the story. Now you're not gonna use a book like 
with verbal routines like brown bear, brown bear, you're going to use more like a sequencing book. So think more like Very Hungry Caterpillar or another book with a little plot there. So you say something like, oh, let's tell a story. I'll go first. And so you look at the picture and then you use the same kinds of vocabulary that a child will be able to use. And so let's take the story, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. So um, you would, on, on the very first page, the, the text is, um, in the light of the moon, a little egg lay on a leaf. And so a child's not going to say that, right? And so what might he say? He might say something like, there's the moon, there's the egg. And so that's what you might model as you read through the book. And again, simplistically narrate that book and then start over and have the child do it. Be sure that you're using the same language that the child would and then, you know, give examples as you go. So like on the next uh, on the first page there, we said that we would say something like, with Very Hungry Caterpillar, you know, I see the moon and there's the egg. And then on the next page, uh, which, you know, it starts to remember the plot of the book. It starts the days of the week and it tells you how, uh, what the caterpillar ate every day. And so you can even say something like, the first day, pop, there's the caterpillar or the caterpillar came out or whatever you think, again, that the child would be able to say. And so then you turn the page and you say, your turn, what happened next? And so keep taking turns um, if it seems to take the pressure off the child. But again, what's your goal here is that the child will look at the picture and be able to sequence the events in the book and tell you what happened. Now, if the book is too long for that, you can skip some pages just to keep the plot going. Now, lots of speech-language pathologists use flashcards or apps for this, but I stick to it when I'm first working on this with a child with a book, and I think it's much more functional here. And so you can use even some pre-prepared uh, therapy materials for this. Lots of uh, companies sell those little flashcard sets where you can look at sequencing there and a child you know, can organize the pictures. And that's what this goal really is. But I'm just trying to teach you how to teach it to a child. So another thing that you could do is take pictures of the child that you're working with while he's completing an activity, which is really, really fun. You print those pictures and then, you know, have him arrange the pictures in the order that it happens. And you might take something like washing his hands or uh, coming in from school and, you know, taking off his uh, maybe his raincoat and his shoes and going to sit down for a snack or whatever, you know, uh, getting ready for bed, whatever a really familiar activity would be. Uh, it's a really cute way to do it. I've had moms work on this at home with kids uh, after I've gotten them started with it. So just take pictures of a child performing a daily routine, review the pictures, and then narrate the sequence of events with short sentences. So let's do an example for washing hands. So first you would what? Take a picture of a child with obviously dirty hands there. Next, we're going to photograph the child walking to the sink. Then we're going to take a picture of the child, you know, putting his hands in the sink or maybe pulling up his sleeves and take a picture of the soap and then so on until we've captured the entire event. Some kids, you know, again, uh, you're probably just going to have to stick with three or four pictures at the, at the beginning. Some kids get great with this and you can add pictures, you know, until you're up to seven or eight different pictures. Uh, but our point here is just to really be able to sequence those events. And so another thing moms and dads can do to work on this at home is really talk through the sequences for daily routines. So for bath time, a mom would say something like, you know, first we go in the bathroom and then mom turns on the water for the bath 
bathtub, you take off your clothes. And again, walk through all those steps uh, until the child is uh, able to sequence those things. So sequencing can be so fun to work on. My caution is just to start small. If you're starting real small with this with a child who, who again is having a big struggle with it, just try to get the beginning, the middle, and the end of an activity and then add steps in until the child is doing more and more. Teach those time words too because that um, that's going to be coming up and those uh, there may be a problem with those concepts too so words like first next middle last after those words uh, and be sure that you use your visual cues here because that's what this whole milestone is about more than anything just keep at it until the child can do it the next milestone is answers a variety of logical questions including what happened when why and how questions so about three and a half to four we want a child to answer more complex questions and i've already given you that little list there so what happened when why and how so this is an extension of the expressive skills that we've targeted in the last developmental period so let's kind of go back and, and talk about from age three up to four so that we're caught up so by age three we want a child to answer very concrete wh questions and we talked about this back in show 461 if you need a review and so again those are, are you know what's that um where those are things that come first and so let's go now and bump up to here to this question, this list of questions and just walk through here. So the first question would be teaching a child to answer what happened. And so how can we work on this? So during play, you can work on this skill by asking a child what happened when there's a break in the action or when there's been a surprise. And so I think about this and I bet you do this as a therapist when, when you know, you're playing with a child and, you know, a toy breaks or uh, you know, it, it, some, something else happens. It goes behind the couch or the balloon pops that you're playing with. What's the first thing you say? You say what? You say, what happened, right? And so you try here at this level, you want to get a reply that's a full sentence. And so what do we say we have to have to make a full sentence? We need what? We need a subject and a verb. And so even if it's short, we want a child really able to say something like, the balloon popped or... Uh, the fire trucks under the couch or uh, I forgot whatever my last example was there let's say the wheel fell off the, the the tire broke the wheel broke you know whatever it is you want that basic sentence construction there and again you want an accurate explanation so that someone else could really hear him reply there and understand what what had happened so use your visual cues point model the response and encourage imitation those are always our strategies right so if a child is having difficulty um, uh, with this and this is something we're really practicing I also ask what happened not only when there are surprises but at the end of every play routine so again a child can start to tell me even something really really simple so when a child has started uh, finished playing with something before we start to clean up get him just to recast recap what happened by asking you know what did we play or what happened and so the goal Again, it could be something as simple as I play cars, but by four, we, we probably want a little bit more than that, right? We want those verb tenses there. We want, what, a conjunction, maybe all, a plural, all the milestones that we've talked about. So I played cars and trucks. And so, you know, it might even walk them through it even more. You know, we play with the garage. And what do we do with the garage? Oh, we put our cars in then we took our cars out or uh, first we put the cars in the garage then we raced and so we want a child really able to tell us again what that sequence of events that we just talked about with pictures right all right the next kind of question that we want him to answer are 
when questions. So to teach a child to understand when questions, we have to teach what? We have to teach time words and to talk about specific times that a child performs actions during his day. And so markers, so like breakfast time, bedtime, snack time, school time, play time. Those are, are time words too, in addition to words like first, next, middle, last, and after. So uh, those are imp that kind of important prerequisites for answering when questions. And again, kids have to really uh, be able to understand those sequential relationships. And so not only is the language component there, that cognitive component is there as well. So you may have to, again, teach those vocabulary words like before and after or first or, you know, first, next, and last, those kinds of things. Uh, other times that we, uh, other examples here would be, uh, things like when when do you uh, and and this goes right into answering our logical questions. So like when you're thirsty, you go get a drink, or when it's dark outside, uh, we sleep or we go to bed. Those kinds of things. So that's another kind of when question that we might teach a child to answer. All right, let's move on to why. So what about teaching why questions? So what's your prerequisite here? Before a child begins to answer why questions, he has to what? He has to wonder why. He has to demonstrate an interest in how and why things work. And when kids aren't doing that, lots of times, again, it's because that curiosity or, again, that cognitive piece is there. So our little kids with uh, intellectual disorders are going to have a harder time with this than, say, our, our kids who may have um, just the language delay going on or our kids with any other kind of uh, issue where cognition is not a factor. And so we have to really, uh, sometimes with wine, we just have to start really, like we said before, facilitating that. So really just asking a child, why does your doggy want to eat? Why do you want to um, go outside right now? Or, or again, whatever your question is there to really stimulate that so that a child can, again, begin to begin to ask those questions as well as learn to answer those questions. So really, again, this is something that parents can work on a lot at home. So just by asking things like, why do you need your backpack? I'm going to school. You know, my lunch is in there, whatever the answer is. Why is it dark outside? Because it's nighttime, because the sun went down, those kinds of things. All right, so how questions. Let's move on to that. So again, why questions and how questions are related because they really are demonstrating an interest, again, in how, how things work. And so uh, to uh, begin to help a child really think about this when a child does something in play like for how questions like pushing a button or activating music you know feign shock just act like you've never seen anything like that before and say how did you do that how does that work and again model whatever that answer would be you would say something like oh you pushed the button and made music or uh you know oh the the your your house fell down because you rolled the tractor into it. You know, again, whatever the answer to that question is. But be sure that you're narrating, that you're talking out loud. You know, things like, you know, how does this toy work? Hmm, I can't figure that out. And again, teach a child those words so that they really begin to hear those question words in that functional context so that you are practicing, you're modeling it, you're discussing it with them, you're discussing the answer, and then you're practicing some more. That is really the only way. Now, if you want to have a more thorough walk through question development, go back and listen to 460 because we, we walked through kind of the 
prerequisite questions. And again, remember what we said, anytime a child, like if you were working at this level with a child and he's nowhere near answering these questions, you have to always do what? Back up. So back up and listen to show 461 if you need some more tips for working on questions. The next milestone is makes inferences. So again, what's an inference? It's really a prediction based on your past knowledge about what's going to happen. So this is where children answer questions about hypothetical events, like what would you do if? So let me give you some examples. What would you do if your tummy hurts? So how would a child answer that question? He would probably say what? Tell my mommy or tell my teacher or something like that or uh, uh, you know, sit on the couch or maybe even say something like take some medicine, you know, whatever would be a logical answer for that. So what would you do if you were playing outside and you hear thunder and saw lightning? What would you do? And so again, ask a, a kid that kind of question, you know, what would his response be? You know, again, tell mommy, run inside, uh, you know, uh, uh, go in the car what, or leave the park, you know, whatever the answer would be there. Uh, what would you do if you spilled your drink? So those are the kinds of questions that we want a child to be able to answer. So children at this developmental level learn to make associations and judgments, again, based on their prior experiences. So they now begin to understand statements like, we can't go to the park today because it's raining or you are sick, so you can't go to that birthday party today. So practice that new level of reasoning by giving explanations for a child own actions, point out your own inferences and your own predictions and sessions by saying things like, hmm, you know, you look really sweaty. Was it hot outside? Those kinds of things. And again, really help children begin to make those connections or something like, oh my goodness, your shirt is so dirty. I bet you painted this morning. Did you paint at school today? And again, you're helping them make those connections there. So to work on this skill, to work on inferences, you talk about the reasons that something happened and you teach your parents of these children that you're working with to provide these kinds of explanations all day long. I call it teaching them to think out loud. And parents like that strategy. Another thing that it does is it helps the parent become a lot more conversational or chatty. And when we have parents that are doing that, what happens with their children? They usually become more conversational and chatty too. So even during their play. Now you don't want a child to sound like a therapist so that, you know, and, and I've heard this, I've heard this even with kids on, you know, that I've treated. You know, they pick up a book and they say something like, this is a book. A book is for reading. You don't want it like that. You know, a lot of our little friends here on the spectrum kind of cling to little uh, things like that. When they start to do it once, they start to do it everywhere. But even when that happens, you've made them more conversational. And so, again, it gives parents a nice way to teach what? To teach reasoning, to teach logical thinking and those appropriate responses. So do it out loud. Teach parents how to do it by doing it yourself during sessions so they can see how to model that more effectively for the kid that you're working with. The last milestone that we're going to talk about today is uses conjunctions to join ideas in more complex sentences. And so a child by the time he's four with typically developing language will start to use the words that we call conjunctions. So these are words like and, but, so, and if. And what does he do? He's joining two sentences to form one larger 
more complex sentence. So when this happens, what naturally increases? It's sentence length and MOU, right? And so these kinds of words are super important. Now, direct imitation is the very best way to introduce these kinds of longer sentences, but a child may still not be able to spontaneously sequence more than four or five words or imitate that longer utterance. But again, the conjunction is a nice way to make that happen. So I like to start with and, and I usually don't start it with, again, with joining two sentences. We usually start with and when it's you're joining two items so that you're making, you know, again, usually the subject or usually even maybe the object of your sentence there. But again, it, it's what a child is doing that determines this. So uh, you may have to begin again at the simpler level with combining two nouns. So you might give him a choice and say something like, do you want to play with Batman or do you want to play with Robin or do you want to play with Batman and Robin? And again, you are separating or you're joining those and really making those separate at the beginning and then demonstrating how you're going to kind of join that. And so when a child masters imitating these shorter combinations, where again, you're joining those two nouns with the word and, then you can expand your targets to include um, uh, those words. You know, I play Batman and I play Robin, or I play Batman first and then I play Robin. Whatever you have to do to, again, join those join those things, whatever makes sense in the context of that child's, uh, what he's doing there. And again, incidental teaching, I don't have to give you specific examples. It's going to come up. <laughs> so uh, our premise here is taking those two shorter sentences and again, joining that with a conjunction. All right, so let's move on. When we teach but, we're introducing that counter argument. And so there are children who are naturally um, more argumentative than other children. They probably figure out those kinds of words. Like you tell them they want you want them to do something and they start the whole what, but, 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 and giving you all the reasons that you have not uh, come to the same conclusion that they have reached about something. And so I, I think about uh, teaching this like opposites and really providing that explanation. You want to go outside, but we can't. It's raining. You, I know you don't want to go to sleep, but we have to go to sleep because it's nighttime or whatever it happens to be there. And remember, but is your joiner word there. All right, when we teach so, when we teach that conjunction, we're giving a reason. So it's time to eat so your tummy's not hungry anymore. We have to brush your teeth so you don't get cavities. Or we have to brush your teeth so your teeth aren't dirty. Whatever your reason is there. So remember that that. Uh, like we talked about back in that previous milestone with making those inferences and talking about what the reason is, this is another natural extension of that. And that's why I describe this whole developmental period here as, again, kind of the beginning of logical thinking when children have that language to be able to support that. You know, another example, we pick up your toys so they don't get broken, or we pick up your toys so daddy doesn't fall on them, or, you know, whatever you say there. Um, the word if is the next conjunction. So when we teach if, we're teaching what? We're teaching a condition. So it's there, whatever is going to happen is conditional. It, the first thing has to happen first. So if you eat your chicken, you can have some, a cookie. Or if you eat your chicken, you can be finished with lunch. If you put on your coat, we can go outside. If you give me your cup, I'll get you some more juice. So um, the conjunctions are the reason that the child's MOU goes way, way up in this period, right? Because you're joining those two uh, different sentences. So 
you're teaching them not only to add one part, you know, like cookies and milk or cars and trucks, but a whole new sentence. You know, I want to paint and then I want to watch my movie. Um, and so a big way to increase that length and complexity of utterances is using the conjunction. So be sure you're working on that when a child is ready to do that. All right, so this is the end. We have made it all the way through this Language Milestones podcast series by finishing it up today uh, with the Expressive Language Milestones for 48 months. So let me just take just a minute to talk about the big takeaways from this series. And I hope that you've been with me through this whole time. I understand that there are preschool therapists who may not have watched the shows way back at the 12 month level. And certainly I've probably lost some of you strictly birth to three people and you're not even hearing my words right now because you never treat a four year old or a kid who's over three. But let's just talk about this whole series. We want to talk about um, how we teach these skills developmentally. And so when we take a developmental approach, we really are looking at what milestones should be coming in at the same time. And remember what we said about this show. It's lots of times, uh, or all the time, in, in most of the milestones are related within a developmental period. And that's because the cognitive underpinnings, if you want to think about that, or the foundation like that, that's there. And then the natural language, you know, what's going to emerge from what the child is learning cognitively. And so uh, when we have difficulty with that, or when it's, let's say a child has splinter skills, what do we have to do? We've got to go back and teach those foundational pieces. If a child is just really stuck, you don't start at where those goals are. You start back where he first starts to have difficulty with that. So anytime a child is not meeting an expressive goal, what do we know we have to do? We have to work on that goal receptively too. So those are the two main things that I want you to remember from the series. One more, let me add one more. Anytime a child is not meeting a goal, it means what? What does it mean? It means that the goal is too hard. So we have to back up to those easier, earlier milestones, strengthen those, and then we're gonna move forward. Now the handouts in the shows, and I hope that you've been with me the first show in this series was show number 450 and we're up to show number 463. The handouts will be super for this and I've had therapists who've been frustrated with me for how long this series has taken uh, to uh, be completed because they've been keeping the handouts and they're keeping them all together and they've said that it's a really nice way to kind of organize their treatment, look at the skills that go together and then be able to pass along a really user-friendly tool to parents so that they can see the milestones group there together and then have um, the strategy strategies uh, there for working with their child. Now the very best resource for teaching all the milestones that we've reviewed in this whole series from show 450 all the way to show 463 is from Teach Me to Talk the Therapy Manual. It's the resource that I used to develop this podcast. It's a book I wrote I think in 2011 maybe but a great great resource. It's certainly one that I still use uh, every day that I work with kids to select goals and then to pick strategies and activities that really, really work. So if you are having difficulty with that on your caseload, or if you are a mom who just needs more structure and more organization to your work at home with your own child with a language to layer disorder, this is a wonderful tool for you. And you can find the description right here on YouTube uh, for this therapy manual and then the link to get more information about purchasing it. And you can get that at my website at Teach Me to Talk. And again, that link link is right there below. 
don't forget to get your CE credit for this show if you need it. If you're listening on your podcast app, be sure to go to teachmetotalk.com, my website, and get the show credit for just $5. If it's your first show with us, thank you so much for joining us. We want to be your main provider for continuing education courses. Uh, Anytime that you need those, and you can get a link to our master list of all podcasts with CE credit right here uh, on YouTube. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thank you so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk's podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.